Hosea chapter 12. What keeps you from Christ? Subtitle, The Deceitfulness of Sin. The Deceitfulness of Sin. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews to be careful about the deceitfulness of sin. There's also this deceitfulness of riches. But deceitfulness of sin is quite interesting. It actually, sin can be deceiving. Sin can actually lead you to believe something that is completely wrong and completely opposite of what God says. Uh, And you could actually think about it and talk yourself into doing something that is away from Christ. Why? Not because you're not smart, not because we're not smart. It's because sin is spiritually deceiving. And if that spiritual deception comes into our lives, we are in for the world of hurts. But Hosea chapter 12, let's read the first few verses. And this is Hosea's message to the northern kingdom. Ephraim, actually, I'm going to start in verse 12 of chapter 11. Uh, I I forgot the precursor of this. In the original text, chapter 11, verse 12, it's actually the beginning of a new section. Uh, Chapter divisions are not inspired, so we don't, I mean, they're great in the Bible. It helps you find things. Uh, But they actually break the flow of the intent of the original writer. So go to chapter 11, verse 12, and we'll read right through it. Um, Just pretend that's actually the beginning of the chapter. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. In this chapter, we're going to find out about the father of the nation of Israel, not just Abraham, but Jacob, which had his name changed to Israel. Therefore, they got the name from the 12 tribes. 12 sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Israel, became the nation. We're going to know a lot about Israel, a lot about Jacob. Israel carries his name, and through that man's character, you're going to see some things that the nation is guilty of And what the prophet says, remember Jacob and come back to the Lord. Because Jacob came back to the Lord. He was a swindler. He was a supplanter. He was a heel catcher. He was a deceiving man. And yet he came back to the Lord. Israel, you come back to the Lord. And the other picture is going to be of the Exodus. Another picture is going to be of the Exodus. So it's very important that you as a Christian have a great hold of the Old Testament. Um, I know it's, it's somewhat of a vacuum sometimes in churches where uh, the Old Testament is not understood, it's not talked about, it's sort of a, you know, what do we need the old, on with the old, and, you know, here with the new, and that's not how the Bible works. It actually works like two headphones. You put them on, one is the new, one is the old. If you just listen to one, you're not listening to the full word of God. You need both heads, both uh, set of headphones on your head. You have a stereo within the Bible. But here is a man who is preaching to the northern kingdom. Remember, at this point, Hosea is a prophet that goes to the north. He's a northerner. He actually stands alone. There's no other prophet to the north. Micah had preached his message, and he is, uh, Amos, I'm sorry, had preached his message, and he's done with preaching, but he's not, and he's going to the northern kingdom. In the south, you had guys like Isaiah and Micah still preaching, but Hosea is up in the north preaching to a very hardened nation. And in the picture that Hosea brings to the nation of of, of Israel is to indicate them to remember where they came from. Remember, they weren't always like this. 
There wasn't a divide before. There were actually one people, one nation. And through sin and idolatry, they broke up. But he's going to remind them of what it was like when God took them out of Egypt through his great hand of strength and brought them into the promised land. And so he's going to talk to them, and he's going to make mention of Ephraim, which is a, uh, another word for Israel. Ephraim was the largest tribe of the northern kingdom, and so it takes on the name of the largest tribe in Israel. And Ephraim was the center of the culture, the center of politics, the center of everything. Samaria was there, which was the capital. And it's interesting that when we read Hosea, we tend to think of it in a sense of, well, that's for them. You know, that's for them. In fact... Paul the Apostle told us everything written in the Old Testament, it wasn't written to us, it was written for us, for our instruction. This is to you, this is to me, who named the name of Jesus. This is exactly what Paul said. Pay attention to the Old Testament, because it was written for you, not to you. There's actually a people here, it's the northern kingdom of Israel, but it's also written for the church, to the body of believers. So we can't take Hosea and say, well, how awful these kings were, how awful politically they were. Uh, that means that America must be so awful, or England is so awful, and that might be true, but this book's not for them. This book's for the church. This book is for the body of Christ. It's for us to look at our own leadership and our own behavior and our own relationship with Christ and say, how far are we from God's original plan? Israel was way off the map from God's original plan. God's original plan was for them to come out of Egypt, a brand new people, saved by the blood of the Lamb. Remember the Lamb on the doorpost? Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, come through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, into the promised land, and to dwell with God in a relationship with Him, in fellowship with Him 24-7. And He even planted himself. God, through the tabernacle, put himself in the midst of Israel. That's God's intent. When we get to this part of Hosea, I almost don't want to keep reading. The last three chapters have been so difficult for the soul to remember. These are God's people that have gone so far into sin, and yet we have to look at ourselves through this bifocals. You ever had bifocals? You know, some, once for, to read close, and then you lift up your eyes a little bit, and you read a little further out, for distance reading, right, or distance uh, looking. And that's what a bifocal is. So when we read Hosea, we look close to what they were dealing with, and we look ahead to the church, and we see that God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church are intertwined together. They're intertwined together. They're actually almost two sides of the same coin. That's what it would be like. And so when we look at God's mercy to Israel and God's forgiveness to Israel, we have to see God's mercy and forgiveness to God's people. But when we see God's chastisement and judgment of Israel because of their unrepentant heart, immorality, and the hardness of heart, and, and they're going away from God completely, then we have to consider the fact that the church, if, he do, if the church does that, then that's going to be the outcome of it. There's going to be God's uh, judgment upon the nation, upon not the nation, but the church. And uh, I know that's not a pleasant thing to hear. Again, one of those things where, well, nobody ever told us that, that we're okay. Well, Jesus said to the seven churches, the seven churches, he said that if they didn't repent, he would remove their lampstand. If they didn't repent, they would go through a very difficult time, a very 
hard time that is coming upon the earth, if they didn't repent, that God was going to bring a sword to them. The word of God was going to judge them. But Israel was guilty of broken promises, completely broken promises. They promised to obey the Lord. You know what? I don't know if you remember when you came to Christ, but that was a promise that we made too. He will be our God and we'll be his people. And we're going to follow him on the basis of his word and by his spirit. And so uh, during this time, the sin and corruption of Israel became worse and worse and worse. They actually uh, became like the nations that God drove out of that land. They actually became just like them and worse because they knew better. And during this time, they had a, this balance of power was going on. So when you read Hosea, you have to think, what was going on in their time? And what was going on is you had Assyria in the north and Egypt in the south, and they were going back and forth. They were the two great powers. And because of their great power, they neutralized each other, and Israel lived in the middle, sort of like this. Israel lived in the middle, Egypt to the south. Assyria kept growing and growing. And Israel, for a time, was very prosperous. They felt that they had a lot of land. They expanded the lands. They expanded their economy. And they were very prosperous because Assyria and Egypt were clashing against each other. And they felt that they were safe. And they made a deal with them. They actually made a deal with both. So you don't attack us, and you don't attack us. Hooray, peace! But the Bible tells us that some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. Trust no prince, the Bible says. Trust no prince, trust no king, trust no man. But a man is to trust in the Lord. It's the only one that you can trust. It's the Lord in his word and his promise. And Assyria overcame Egypt, and because of their sin and because of their treaty, Against, each, against Syria, because they also made a treaty with Egypt, Assyria came and destroyed Israel. And for the period of Hosea, for about 30 years, they had six kings in Israel, all of them bad. Five were murdered by the next king. So there's this constant turmoil in the, in the nation. And of course, that turmoil was largely to do with this. Two pagan areas, Bethel, in the south, Dan in the north. In fact, the king, Jeroboam I, he didn't want his people to go to Jerusalem where they were to worship the Lord. So he put these two calves in the north and in the south so they don't have to go and worship the Lord. They can worship them and they can call them God. They can, you can call them God. And they literally did. They can call them God. So how can somebody get so carried away into thinking that that's God? Well, they did this in the wilderness too. Remember Moses? came down, and they were already committing harlotry around a golden calf. And they thought it was God. And the idea was that they, they needed somebody that they could see, they can grab a hold of, they can give them what they wanted. And these gods, these golden calves, by the way, uh, Hinduism still worships the golden calf. Uh, not the golden calf, but cows. It's, a, it's an idol. It's a, uh, in fact, it's illegal to harm any cattle. because it's, it's, it's actually a god in Hinduism. Uh, so it, there's still that very aspect of uh, idol worship and calf worship in the world. Uh, but Israel had become so apostate, so immoral, that they, uh, we have the ruins. These are the ruins in Dan, northern area, uh, of actually where they worshipped the golden calf. You can go up there today, get on a plane, land in Tel Aviv, 30 miles north. You can go to Dan, and you can find the place where they literally worship these things. Dan up in the north, there it is. 
And you can literally see in your mind the priest, the priest of God saying, this is God, this is God, this is God. And they, the deceitfulness of idolatry and sin actually led them to believe that that was actually God. A God created out of their own, in their own imagination, fashioned after themselves. And don't think for a moment that doesn't happen today. People fashion God to whatever they want. Ask around, just ask people. Ask people, even in churches, what is God like? And uh, you'll come up with some amazing things, you know, interesting things about God that you never heard before. And many times, what I usually tell them is it's interesting that uh, God, the God in your mind, uh, he actually thinks like you. What you like, he likes. <laughs> you know, it's not, it, it, there's no difference. So you created a God after your own imagination, your own mind, which is idolatry. Uh, the Bible tells us we worship a God that's holy, that's outside of us, that he's not like us. He's nothing like us. We can never assume for a moment that God is like us. He's above us. He's greater than us. He's pure, holy, perfect, righteous in all his ways. Um, he doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't, uh, he's patient and he forgives, but he doesn't tolerate. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't go, well, don't worry about that. He will deal with it. And of course, the way he wants us to deal with it is through his son, the one that was punished on the cross for that sin. But in the midst of all this, the voice, not the show, but the voice of Hosea, the prophet, the lone voice in Israel. Can you imagine being alone, being the only one that would actually proclaim the truth in that kingdom? Nobody else did. Nobody else will believe you. But you had to do it. And you had to do it for several reasons. If you haven't been with us, you, you have to remember the first few chapters. Hosea pictures, he's a symbol of the relationship between God and his people. Uh, it's symbolized by Hosea and his wife. His wife left him. Uh, he married an immoral woman. God told him to do it. Uh, Gomer is her name. And she left him to go to other lovers. She went to other men. And she lived in this relationship, this harlotry with Hosea. And Hosea was broken over this. But God kept telling him to go back and get her and love her back and love her back. And they had three children. One of them was surely Hosea. The other ones are questionable. But through the children, even the names of the children, uh, God was beginning to proclaim a message to the people who were saying, just because you have a heritage doesn't mean you're my children. And that brokenness of Hosea is the brokenness of God for his people. In this book, you feel the passion of God for his people. He really loves his people. But he's a broken husband. He's a man that has been broken by the sins of his wife, by the sin committed against him. If you ever experience adultery in your life, you ever experienced the pain of, 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 of unfaithfulness, you've ever felt the brokenness of being in those, you can understand Hosea. You can understand God's point of view. My people left me. They were my wife. Israel was the wife of God. And she's out there whoring around with other men, with other gods. And uh, he's broken. Now that he's broken, God said to Hosea, now you can preach. Now you know how I feel. Now you can share what I feel to Israel. And it's always important. God always puts us in ministry many times and puts us in trials and difficulties. We come out of those trials, sometimes very broken, sometimes very difficult things that we experience, but we feel that that is exactly what God wanted us to do to understand and for a message to be right, so we can relate to the message. Not just a theory, but we live it. We live it, and sometimes it's very difficult to live 
that which God puts us through. Uh, but it's important. So the prophet said, you need to have fellowship with God. That was his main message. You need to have fellowship with him. You have left him. You have departed from him. You have apostatized from a relationship with him and gone after other gods, other idols, other people, other lovers, if you want to put it in marital terms. You've gone after other lovers. But God still loves you. God wants you back. He wants you back. He wants you to be in a relationship with him. And Hosea was not a yes man. He was a watchman. And he told the truth. And therefore, he wasn't very liked. Nobody likes a watchman. People like a yes man. Everything's fine. Yes, yes, go ahead, do it. It's okay. Well, what about this sin? That's all right. God's completely okay with it. A watchman says, no, that needs to be repented. That needs to be dealt with. That needs to be forsaken and, and go back to the Lord. But who wants to do that when everybody else is having a great time in sin? And so the picture of God in Israel is the picture of Jesus in the church. We're the bride of Christ. The same standards that God had for Israel, the same standard that God has for us. In fact, I could even say it's a, a greater calling. Because the Bible says those who disobeyed Moses were dealt with. How much more those who trampled on what Jesus had done, on his sacrifice. The fullness and the revelation of God in Christ is greater than the revelation that they had in the law. We have the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ, and in the Spirit in us, the fullness of the revelation of the Scripture. How much more is God requiring of us? Those who the end of the age has come. We know more than they did. We have the fullness of the revelation. So it's helped us understand a few things about it. It's that it's just not for them only. It was written to them, but it's for us, and for us to really take our relationship with God very seriously. So this is, uh, I, I broke it down last week, this is the, uh, the, the, the chapter 11 and chapter 12, Israel's sin and a call to repentance, and this is what's going to happen. Uh, there's four things that we're going to look at, and that is, first of all, we're going to look at, um, look where you are now. Look where you are now. Israel, look where you are now. And if it fits in, in our lives, look where we are now. Um, the other part in chapter 12 is, this is where you could be. This is where you could be. And, of course, what's keeping you from Christ? would be the third question that we'll ask. What's keeping you from Christ? And then the last part is, this is very serious. We need to take it very serious. So there's four things we need to do. So the first part is, look where you are now. Ephraim, I'm sorry, in verse 12, Ephraim... And of course, is getting your own way. So this is the word that the Bible uses. It is the Bible uses the other word. It's still a walk, but what kind of a walk? Is it this one or this one? The Bible uses that one. And it says that's rebellion. Judah walks with him in a rebellious way. Unruly, you would translate it. Unruly. So what happened is that they, you see the same word, you see the word walk, you have to make a decision. Is it a nice spiritual walk or is it an unruly, unfaithful walk? And uh, the Hebrew text has it an unruly, unfaithful walk. So I can see why it was translated the other way, because it's a walk. But it's an un what kind of a walk, we would say. It's an unruly walk. Anyway, a lot, lot of um, um, explanation on that. It's not a Hebrew class, but it is to explain this. Judah was also rebellious. The northern kingdom was also rebellious, but it took another... 400 years or so later, 
until Judah was dealt with by Babylon. But let's continue. Does that make sense? I want to make sure you guys are okay. Verse 2. The Lord has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. So Ephraim feeds on the wind. They multiply lies. They multiply violence. They lie to get their way. Uh, they make covenants with Assyria and Egypt. And the Lord has a dispute with them. And he will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. God is going to deal with him. Now, um, what, Israel, what God is saying is that Ephraim has become like politicians. They'll just say whatever they have to say to get out of it. They become uh, political. They become uh, basically just talkers. They just talk a lot, and they don't really mean anything. They make this covenants with Assyria and with Egypt, and they don't really... In fact, it's interesting. They made a covenant with both. They told Assyria one thing, and they told Egypt one thing. Oh, yeah, we'll stand with you. And then they went to Assyria. Oh, yeah, we'll stand with you. What do you call somebody like that? They're just, you know, they're hedging their bets. Well, somebody's going to win, so I'm just going to be on both sides. And that actually brought their destruction, what they thought was them to be really good and something that they could be shrewd and wise about. It actually brought their destruction. And it's interesting that even the church today, um, I, I give you the example in England. What does the church stand for in England? stand for anything. It's so weak. I mean, there's strong believers in there, but I'm talking about the church in general. It's so weak. They don't stand for anything. So Islam comes in, and it's like, well, who wants to be Christians? They have idols, homosexuality, immorality, drunkenness. It's better to be Muslims. And people say, yeah, it's better to be Muslims. The church doesn't stand for anything. And uh, they make deals with all kinds of people. Look what the church makes deals. They make all kinds of ecumenical deals all the time just to be relevant, just to be strong, just to be cool. And God says, you don't need to do that. You don't need to be making deals with Assyria or Egypt or anybody else. And God promises that if sin is found, he'll judge it. If sin is found, that's what verse 2 is about. If sin is found, he will judge it. He will punish according to his will. How many times in Revelation do you find Jesus saying the same thing? He's coming quickly, and he will deal with those, right, according to their deeds. That's what Jesus said. The most loving man that has ever lived and will ever live. He said when he comes, he'll deal with them. He'll deal with people according to their deeds. Fascinating to me. We forget that. Now, verse 3, this is where... So this is where you are, now verse 3, this is where you could be. And here's a story, and this is, you got to get your, your Bible open, you got to get your thinking caps on. We're not going to be able to read every single passage, but it will be good for you, good for the soul, to go back and read in Genesis the story of Jacob. In the words, in the womb, I'm sorry, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and therefore he spoke with us. And therefore he spoke with us. Even the Lord, God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. Like a wonderful teacher, Hosea says, I'm going to take you back in time to where you need to look to. And you need to look to your forefather, Jacob. And Jacob, his word, literally, he describes it in verse 3. Uh, he took his brother by the heel. Literally, the word is a heel catcher, a supplanter. 
Somebody that pushes someone out of the way to get their way. So in more American modern terms, Jacob was like this. Does that make sense? All right. Literally pushing people out of the way to get his way. That's what Jacob, his word, his name, Jacob, that's what it means. Somebody that will do anything to get their way. So you ever been to like a, I've been to baseball games and you see people going after a foul ball and all of a sudden somebody pushes somebody off to the side and he catches the ball and you just go flying. That happened to me a few times. You, you don't even know what happened. Somebody just shoved you out of the way and got the ball. That's what Jacob would have done to you and to me. He would have done anything to get their way, to get his way. And that's what his name meant. And he finagled even the blessing of his father by substituting himself with the help of his mom. Um, he substituted Esau with himself and uh, put a hairy thing on because Esau was hairy. And he did all kinds of things to get the blessing from God uh, through his way. But then something happened. And this is where, again, this is back in Genesis. This is Jacob. This is the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. He's a heel catcher. He becomes this, uh, this man who will do anything to get his way. Verse 3, and it says, In his maturity he contended with God, and he wrestled with the angel and prevailed, and he wept and sought his favor, and he found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Now it's interesting, when he, uh, Jacob was running from Esau, remember, he took the blessing, Esau was completely upset. That's it. I'm going to kill him. And Jacob says, oops, I have to go. And he leaves his mom, right? Rebecca was his mother, and uh, there's sort of a, a favoritism there, which is not, not good parenting there. Parenting 101, they would have failed. You know, one favored the son, the mom favored the, uh, Jacob, and then the, the father favored Esau. Bad home. Don't ever favor your kids. Treat them both the same. And... Um, and it's hard. I get it. It's hard. I have five, and it's hard to favor each one. And uh, they always ask me, who's your favorite? You are. <laughs> then the other one comes, who's your favorite? You are. I thought you said the other one was. I thought you said I was. You're all my favorite at the same time. Isn't that true, parents? It's, it's, a, isn't that, it's an amazing thing that you can actually love them the same way. And uh, anyway, that's another story. And... Um, but Jacob runs away from his brother because he's going to kill him. And he runs and he runs and he gets to this place called Bethel. And he has this encounter with God. He sees the staircase that goes up to heaven uh, with angels going up and down the ladder. It's actually the idea of Jacob's ladder, but it's more of a staircase. And he has a dream and he wakes up and he says, this is God's house. And he says, this is Bethel. This is God's house. God's here. And he has this encounter with God where God says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord of hosts. And remember, he's been running away from God, had no interest of God, just getting his stuff, just getting his way, right? And um, many people live like that. I lived like that for quite a long time, just trying to get yours. That's all I ever wanted is trying to get mine, can care less about God. And then you have an encounter with God. But did he walk with God after that? The answer is not quite. He kept running and running. Remember, he had wives. And he kept running from God, running from God, and he gets to the place, you can go today, you can go to the area, uh, Machanin, it's called Machanin, it means two camps, it means two camps. And what Jacob did, smart guy that he was, remember Jacob, very smart, very, very smart, very shrewd in his own ways. But you cannot run God, 
You think you're smart. You think you can maneuver around God and try to come up with all these maneuvers and tricks and stuff like that. You can never do that. God will get you to the point where he'll put you behind the eight ball until you do it his way, his calling, his way, his truth, until you admit it. That's what God's going to do. And Jacob was the kind of guy, maybe you were like that. Maybe I was like that, where you just run away from God. You don't want the calling. You don't want to follow. You don't want to go that way. And you will do everything and anything and maneuver, business, school, whatever, relationships, to get away from God. Finally, he gets to this place. It's called Mahanim. And he says, look, Esau's going to kill me. I'm going to divide the camp. He takes, okay, some of you guys go this way. Some of you guys go that way. So if Esau traps us, at least we have one. And Jews think like that even today. They're very good. Have you ever seen um, um, movies or documentaries about the Holocaust and things like that? What's that movie about the Jewish people in the woods? I can't remember the name. It's a very famous movie. It's a, it's a true story of the Jews that went into the, the forest and they armed themselves. I cannot remember the name. It was a, um, anyway, they, they did that. They actually uh, set up a camp and they were watching out for the Nazis coming in. And they were very good at maneuvering around. This is, comes from... Their forefathers, Jacob. And Jacob set up this camp, and he says, look, two camps go one way, go this way. If Esau gets one, at least we have the other. And he falls asleep, and he comes to the place called the, the Brook of Jabbok. The Brook of Jabbok. This is uh, Genesis 32. And read it tonight. It's a fascinating story. And he gets there, and he wrestles with the angel of the Lord, the Metatron. He wrestles. That's the, what they call him in, in Hebrew. He wrestles with the angel of the Lord. And he wrestles, and he wrestles, and he wrestles. He grabbed a hold of him. I mean, this is a man that was determined. His determination was to beat God. Can you ever imagine that? His determination was not to give in. I am not going to give in to God. I am, if I'm going to wrestle God, I'm going to win. That's how he, he went into everything like that. If I'm going in, I'm going to win. Well, he got the match that he never wanted. And in his arrogance, he was robbed of his ingenuity. God got his way. And finally, he says, I've seen the face of God. I've seen this face of God. This is Penuel, called it Penuel. I've seen God face to face. He saw Jesus. He was wrestling with Jesus. And in the meantime, God touched the socket, the hip. And it dislocated the hip. And he could no longer run as he ran. He could no longer maneuver as he maneuvered. He could no longer outsmart and outwit people as he did. He had to lean on his staff, and God changed his name to Israel, which means ruled by God, ruled by God. So he went from a heel catcher, supplanter, pushing everybody aside, to somebody who was dependent now on God, leaning on his staff. And believe me, there's a lot of us here who have become leaning on the staff of the Lord. We ran and ran and ran and, and did everything we had to do to get away from God until God touched our hip, whatever that was. Might have been a literal hip, but he grabbed a hold of our lives, and now we don't dare go away from him. Now we walk with the limp, really. We bear the mark of Christ. We bear something that he's touched in our lives. And he put us behind the able so we can surrender to him, and that's what he actually did. He became a surrendered man. So um, Bethel, 20 years later, Mahanin, or the place where he wrestled with God at the book of, Brook of Jabbok, 20 years passed. An encounter with God, 20 years later, 
the fullness of the revelation of God, and he began to walk with God at that point. And what's the point of this? Well, verse, uh, verse 5 says, Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his name, therefore return to the Lord, to your God. Observe kindness and justice. Wait for your God continually. Oh man, that is the call to the church today. That is the call to the church today, is that we will grab a hold of the revelation of God and return to the Lord. The word return, repent. Jesus would have said that to the church in Revelation. Repent and come back to the Lord. Even Ephesus, who had a lot of right things, he says, you left your first love, therefore repent and come back and do the first deeds. But why is Hosea reminding Israel or, or the nation of Jacob? Because he says, look, there was a guy who's the father of this nation who was a heel catcher, a supplanter, but he changed. He came back to the Lord, and you come back to the Lord. You who are doing all the things Jacob did has now become Israel. You become Israel. You could become what God wanted you to be, ruled by God. And in fact, that's what God wants us to be. By the way, you know the word Christian. Christian, right? Christian has become, um, you know, it comes from Christ. It literally means a little Jesus, like somebody who emulates him. It was actually derogatory. In the book of Acts, this is the first time they called them that. In Acts 13, it was a derogatory term. The Romans would make fun of Christians. They would say, look at all these people, silly people, foolish people, trying to be like Jesus. They're trying to be like him. They're little, little Christ, little Christians going around loving people. Ha, oh, how foolish. And the Christians said, that's wonderful. That's great. We are trying to be like our Lord. Oh, I'll embrace a name even though it means that I'm going to probably get killed or beaten or distraught or destroyed. I'm going to embrace the name of the Lord and make it my own. And that's what they did. And so Hosea says, reclaim your original name. You are Israel. You are ruled by God, but you're not behaving like that. So where you've been, this is where you are. This is where you could be. You could be like Jacob. You could be a man who returns to the Lord. But what's holding you back? Verse 7, what's holding you back? So this is the third question. A merchant in his hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, surely I have become rich. Praise the Lord, I'm rich. I know the passage it says in the prophets, right? I have found wealth for myself, and all my labors will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. So they're wealthy, they're rich, and because of that they say, no iniquity has been found in me. Verse 9, But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, and as in the days of the appointed festival. What is holding people back from following Jesus? In one word, brazenness. What does brazenness mean? Well, it means shamelessness. It means no guilt of what I'm doing. Uh, and audacity. Basically, they don't, you don't really care what you do. There's no guilt about it. There's no shame on what I'm doing. I'm doing it, and I'm flaunting it, and I'm living it out loud. And that was their brazenness. They stopped caring what they did. Now, this is what happens to backsliders many times. Now, you and I have talked to people that have been away from the Lord, and they're broken. They're broken for what they've done. They're broken for what they did. They're broken for where they are, and they want to come back to the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. But there are times when you meet somebody, maybe that was you back then, 
when they're just brazen about their sin, they're not coming back. They are shameless about what they're doing. They're boisterous about their sin. They don't care if you tell them. They don't want to hear it anyway. And they're going to continue in that path. And here is the word of the Lord. They were the chosen people of God, and they were absolutely shameless in their sin. In fact, in verse 7, literally you can translate the word a Canaanite. A Canaanite, but it's not translated a merchant, which that's what the Canaanites did. But literally, it's a Canaanite. A Canaanite were the people that lived in the land that God drove out because of their sin and immorality and idolatry. And it says, you are like a Canaanite. You may not have the same bloodline as the Canaanites, but you are spiritually just like them. Imagine that. Imagine the world looking at Christians and saying, you may not have the title of the world. You may go into a little house of meeting, house of prayer, but you behave just like the world. You're just like them. You might as well call yourself the world. And shame, but that happens a lot. That happens where the world looks at the church and says, there's no holiness, there's no righteousness, there's no direction, there's no spirit in them. And says, why should I be like them? They might as well call themselves the world. They might as well call themselves like the, like, like the way they live because there's no real difference. In fact, in the book of Acts, we're told that people were afraid to join the church. Did you know that? The passage in Acts, it says they were afraid to join the church. Why? Something bad was going to happen to them? Well, not exactly. They were, they were so impressed with the holiness of the people that they said, this is real. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to go in there and fake it. I need to be real if I'm going to go in there and live among true Christians. When was the last time you heard a non-believer say that? That they looked at us and said, man, this is real. Like, God is real. I, I can't be a Christian yet, but, man, it's so real. I, I need to get right, you know. And that's what you're inviting. You say, bro, you cannot get right. Jesus is the only one that can make you right. You need to surrender that to him. But when was the last time the world was impressed and, and actually... Uh, was afraid of the holiness and said, man, there must be a holy God that is their God and he must be greater than them because they live such an awesome life. They love their wives. They don't divorce. They don't commit adultery and morality. They're godly. They love their neighbor. They love other people. They love God. Man, we need more like them. But actually, it's the opposite of what we hear. And actually, they hate it. And they hate God because of us. It's actually a black eye to the Lord. Actually, God was angry at Israel because it says, when you go out to the nations and they hear about me from your lips, so they curse my name. Because they said, these are the people of God? God must be weak. God must be not powerful. And God says, I don't want those things to be said by the, by the, by the sinners, by the, by, the, by the nations. And therefore, he says, you made my name a shame among the nations. And it's hard to imagine that we've actually shamed the name of Christ, you know, in our lives. And um, if that's happened, turn from it. That's happened, turn from it. Trust in Jesus. Don't try trust. Just trust him and walk in his way. And, and then he will make his name great in the people that you encounter with. He will make his name great through you. And people will think better of God because they met us. But what was the issue? It was wealth. It was wealth. They become rich. Praise the Lord, I'm rich. I'm a Christian. That's what you hear today. 
And if, we're, and if, you don't, if you're not rich, then you're not a Christian. Oh, man. On their standards, I'm totally backslidden. Um, but being rich was a sign that there was a blessing. Being rich is not a sign of being right with God. It actually could be quite the opposite. And many times the warnings are, be careful about the deceitfulness of wealth. Didn't Jesus say that? We're going to study that next chapter on Sundays. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other things, they enter and they chuck the, chuck the word out and it becomes unfruitful. That's the soil that Jesus was talking about. And it was people who heard the word of God, walked with God, and they deviated from it. And they began to be like Israel. And they began to say, man, it must be good. I mean, we're probably not walking totally with God, but look, all the wealth that we have. Look, at the land's expanding. The homes are, you know, very good homes. The market's doing well. The, the stock market's over 20,000. It must be something good. And it was actually something of deceitfulness. It was a deceitfulness. That just because you were making it, people think that that's God. And I've heard people tell me that all the time. Man, man I know I left my wood, but you know what? If, if God was so mad at me, then why did he give me that race? Or why did I get that house? Or why did I have that car? And I said, bro, it might be. God didn't give you that for what you did. You got it from the wrong God. It's the God of this world who gave you that to deceive you into thinking that's a blessing. You're trusting the wrong God. Because the right God, the true God, would say, go back to your wife, go back to your husband, get things right. That's what the true God would say. Forsake those riches. They're gonna, it's deceitfulness. First of all, the government's going to tax you on it. That's first and foremost. You've got to think about the money. First of all, it, it, something's going to go back to, I was going to say Obama, but you know, he would have been happy to take it. But the, the government would be happy to take it. Secondly, it's gone. Within an instant, just a stock market change, bloop, gone. And then you see people really being concerned, not for their sin because they lost their wealth. And uh, I've seen, I saw more people in 2008 be so distraught that they lost the money than they were about their sin. They were just like, oh, I lost everything. And man, you still trust Christ, right? You still trust the Lord? Man, I don't know. I'm like, man, that's when you know you had an idol. You know you had an idol there because now your faith was shaken at the very fact. You know when you know that it's not shaken is when you can go, the Lord give it, the Lord take us away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I can, I'm going to live the same tomorrow if I lost it all and if I had it today. It doesn't change one bit. I'm still going to go share, teach, preach, go love, with, love one another because if God gives you the wealth, praise the Lord. Use it. Go fund missions. Go send missionaries. Print Bibles. Share tracts. Support people, even like here, that go out to, to the streets and share the gospel. In fact, I like what John Wesley says. He says, uh, earned, earn the, uh, you should earn the, the most that you can so you can give the most that you can. That should be the attitude about money for Christians. Man, I got a race. Praise the Lord. I can give more. I can send more missionaries out there. That's the right view of, 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 of wealth is to say that, man, I'm just a steward. God's just, you know, it scares me how much the Lord has given us here in America. It actually does. To think of the wealth that, 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 that passes through our hands. And he said, man, where you, where you live? I don't know. It's like, I'm talking about in America. If you ever been to another country, you would be coming back saying, we are 
filthy, extremely rich. The poorest of us is the wealthy in those nations. And that's what scares me, what the, what the Bible says about it in the Gospels. And many of the parables of Jesus were against the rich because they were trusting in their wealth. And he says, woe to you, rich. And then we think of, you know, oh, yeah, those are the stockbrokers in Manhattan and the Hollywood Hills guys. And uh, actually, put it in the New Testament standards, he would have been talking to us. He would have been talking to us because we're the wealthy, we're the rich. Even if you don't feel like it, you are extremely rich in comparison to the world. Um, but that's not your true wealth. True wealth in the Bible, it's when you send ahead. It's the riches in heaven. It's people you draw near to Christ. Those are the true riches. So, Jesus, uh, God says in verse 9, But I have been the Lord your God since Egypt. I made you live in tents. I will make you live in tents in the days of appointed festivals. God was reminding them where they came from. They came from Pharaoh's domain into God's domain. Did I redeem you to be like the nations? Did I redeem you to be like the world? Did I bring you out of the world so you could behave like them? So you could do this? Is that why I redeem you? Is that why the Passover? Is that why the Red Sea, the manna, the tabernacle, the law? Is that why I did it? You can see the brokenness of God. You can put it in our, test, in, in our New Testament standards. Is that why I redeemed you from drugs and alcohol and womenizing and all that stuff? So you can go back to doing those things? Is that why I brought you out of that crazy world? It's almost like having tunnel vision. You know tunnel vision? You have no concept of the past, and you have no concept of the future. You just live for the here and now. It's that sort of mentality of the uh, um, sort of like live, live for the here and now, that's it. They forgot about Egypt and where they were slaves in Egypt. And they forgot about what the prophets kept telling us. The new heaven and the new earth. That's where Christians need to be focusing on. It's not about the here and now, although we do live in the here and now. But it's to remember the Old Testament. It's to remember what God did. Look, through. you have about three quarters of an inch here of, of all that God did in the Old Testament. And very little that we do to remember that or read it. And we have the New Testament and the history of the New Testament. And then we have Revelation. We have the future. We still have it. And it's tunnel vision to think, well, this is all there is. This is exactly what we need to do. This is the, a very short-term memory that we have. And we live for the comfort of this world or the instant gratification that this world brings. And that's a deceitful, that's a deceit right there. Instant gratification. Do you realize that all these ideas that propagate in the church, like kingdom now, or your best life now, or seven keys to victory, five keys to prosperity, all that stuff is absolutely to make you think about the here and now. And that's all there is. God says, no, look to the new Jerusalem. Look further. Your situations might be not be so good here, but you need to look ahead. You need to look at what God did in the past, and you need to look ahead what God's going to do in the future. Look ahead to the new Jerusalem. Look ahead to the new heavens and the new earth. And forget this stuff here. This stuff is temporary. It's like a mirage. It's only going to be here for a short time. If you trust in it, you'll be thoroughly disappointed. But now, so this is, we looked at, this is where you are. This is where you could be. This is what's keeping you from Christ. What's keeping you from Christ is 
deceitfulness of riches and wealth and sin. In verse 10 to 14, this is why it's so serious. Look what it says. I have, been, uh, I have also spoken to the prophets, and I gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they're worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like those in stone heaps besides the furrows of the field. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, literally Syria. You mark it down. That's literally in Syria. And Israel worked for a wife. For a wife he kept sheep. But the prophet of the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. Ephraim was provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilty on him and bring back his reproach to him. What does that mean? Well, very simply this. I want you to do, if you have your Bible, take verse 12 and put it in a bracket. Just put it in a bracket because we're going to come back to that. But verses 10 to 14, it's all about the prophets, except for verse 12. So why is verse 12 in there? We'll, we'll, we'll get to that one in a moment. Verse 12 is like an insert, like a bracket, like a parenthesis. Why is verse 12 there? Verse 10, 11, 13, 14 are all about the prophets. So what were the prophets? The prophets were people that spoke for God. God spoke through them. Um, God gave variations of callings on the prophets. And the way they spoke was very different. It wasn't like the law. You know, the law was very much judicial, prose. Thou shalt not do this, don't do that, love the Lord. This is what you do when you're encountering a situation with another person, another brother, love them, forgive them, very much directives. The prophets did not speak like that per se. The prophets gave different symbols and images and parables, and they spoke their symbolic languages, sometimes in poetry, sometimes in visions. Remember Isaiah walks through Jerusalem naked? And he, yeah, it's in the Bible. So, you know, people, where is that? It's in the Bible. It's in the book of Isaiah. Why did he walk around like that? God told him to do it. It was to, oh, Isaiah, kind of embarrassing, bro. I mean, what are you doing? You should be ashamed of yourself. Isaiah would say, you should be ashamed of yourself because you've forsaken the Lord. Oh, well, that's more powerful than if he just said, you've forsaken the Lord. Ezekiel lies on his side for a number of days, lies on his other side for the sins of Israel, for the sins of Judah on, both, on the other side. And it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you lying on what? Captivity's coming. And um, God wants me to stay right here. And uh, just to, to number the sins, to number the days of sins of your people. And people were walking by Ezekiel and going, what are you doing? You're crazy. And it was for the sins of Israel and for the sins of, of Judah. In fact, he did more crazy things. Ezekiel actually burnt, uh, cooked his food and, uh, and dung, poop. God told him, why would he do that? First, he was going to do it with a human excrement. And he was like, no, 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 no. And he says, okay, do it with uh, um, animal excrement. But what was the point? The thing is, I mean, have you ever smelled that? That, that is so horrible. It's like death. Exactly. They would have said, oh, what are you doing, Ezekiel? This is death. Yes, that's the death of your sins. You're bringing upon yourself or forsaking the Lord. Ooh, okay. Another one. We got it. See, they spoke in those ways. They understood a very vivid picture of what they were doing. So this were the prophets. But verse 11, surely, uh, is there iniquity in Gilead? Worthless. Surely they're worthless. Gilgal, they're sacrificed. Their altars are like stones of heap. 
They didn't listen to the prophets. They still didn't listen. And those cities, I don't know if I have a picture of that. Those cities, Gilead, Gilgal, they're all going to meet judgment because of their idolatry. What were the prophets trying to tell them? Stop worshiping idols. Put it in our American terms. Stop cheating on God. Stop cheating on God. Stop going to the world and getting off on the world. Instead, come back to the Lord your God. Come back to Jesus and follow him. Serve him. Stop serving the world. Serve him. It's better, much better. In fact, if you continue to do that, you'll be so far from Christ, there'll be judgment coming upon you. Oh, come on, you serious? That's what the prophets did, and that's what the prophets did to the people. To the people did to the prophets. They didn't listen to them. Now, it says in verse 13, so I'm going to skip verse 12 because I'm going to come back to it. By, but by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was kept. God used Moses tremendously. He was the prophet. He brought from, from Egypt. He used Moses to bring them out, and he used Moses in the wilderness to keep them. The law came through Moses, right? The law came through Moses, but the Bible says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We have a greater than, than Moses, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Ephraim was provoked. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt in him and bring him back his reproach to him. Oh, Israel's going to meet the judgment of God. They didn't listen to the prophets. But what's the point of this? We skip verse 12 for this very purpose. Look back to verse 12. Now Jacob fled to Aram, that would be Syria, write that down, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept his sheep. Now, if you all remember the story of Jacob, all right? Remember the 20 years that I told you? 20, uh, he met God at Bethel. 20 years later, he met God at Penuel. He wrestled with the angel of the Lord. What happened in those 20 years? This is verse 12. There's a gap. But what was Jacob doing for 20 years? What Jacob was doing for 20 years, he was concerned with wives. He was concerned with sheep. He was concerned with oxen. He was concerned with cattle. He was concerned with getting his way. He was concerned with making a lot of money. He was concerned with, uh, well, he was cheated. <laughs> Laban, his father-in-law, said, you work for me seven years, you can have Rachel. Oh, five, seven years? The Bible says they seemed like days to Jacob. He wanted her so bad. He's like, man, it's going to be great. And... Um, Wedding night, gets up the next day. Leah, I didn't sign up for her. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it's a bizarre thinking. I mean, you're a dad that would kind of play like that with his daughters. It's kind of weird, but nonetheless, that was the culture of the day. And um, now, we're not sure exactly. Leah had some, uh, the Bible says he, she had very, she was soft eyes, or she was, uh, the idea is she was, it's something about her looks. Something the way you look at her. Now, some people say she was ugly. We don't know. We don't know exactly what, there was something about Leah that uh, wasn't appealing. I don't know what that would be. Um, but he wanted Rachel. So he said, look, Laban said, fine, I cheated you, sorry. Uh, but if you really want Rachel, you're going to work seven years. Seven years more, and you're going to work for me. And he did it. And the Bible says it was like days. And he finally got Rachel. But he did something, right? He was able to trick Laban. 
he was able to trick Laban into giving him some of his cattle and said, look, I'll take some of the striped ones, you keep the other ones, the spotted ones, and he was able to, uh, my understanding was a miracle um, that God gave him the understanding of what the, what, what the, the spotted or the striped one was going to grow, and he picked the right one, and they grew in cattle and number of sheep, and he was able to get very wealthy. So when Laban tried to trick him, he actually tricked Laban. But what's the point of this? The point of Hosea was this. During those 20 years, that's all Israel was wanting to know, how to get rich, how to have wives, how to be in relationships. And he wasn't really seeking God. And that's where you are. You had an experience with God, like Jacob did, but you haven't really come to the full knowledge of God. You're thinking about wives and relationships and money, and that's all you care about. And you need to come back to the Lord. Otherwise, verse 14 is going to happen. God's going to hold you guilty, and it's going to be a reproach against you. We know from history that Assyria did come against Israel. That generation did not repent at Hosea's words. Some of them did. Some of them went to Judah and actually left the idolatrous area of Israel and went back to Judah and to the temple. But most of that generation did not repent. And that what Hosea said would happen, did. Assyria came like a wild bird of prey and destroyed them. And Hosea would have been distraught at what he saw. You ignore the prophets, you're doing that at your own risk. At your own risk. And to finish off, this is exactly what it reminds me of. The book of Hebrews, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and this is the final verse, we're done with this. Hebrews chapter 10, a beautiful scripture, but a very sobering scripture. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us something about a relationship with Jesus. Verse 28. Hebrews 10, 28 says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy of the testimony of two or three witnesses. God did not allow rebellion in the camp of Israel. You came against Moses, it was coming against God. And it was, it, was put to, it was put aside very, very quickly. Verse 29, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve those, uh, do you think he will deserve who has trampled under the foot of the Son of God, under his foot, the Son of God, and has regarded as an unclean the blood of the covenant, that's the new covenant, the covenant that he made by dying on the cross for us, by which he was sanctified and he has insulted the spirit of grace. So basically what he's saying is, look, how much more severe, if people did this against Moses, were dealt with severely, how much more people who uh, regard the blood of Christ as some, some common thing, some unclean thing, uh, the same blood that sanctified them, and the same, in the spirit of grace, he's actually insulted. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord said, he will judge his people. He will judge his people. The Bible says we have a greater than Moses. A greater than Moses is here. That's Jesus. How much more, how much more intense is the rebellion against the full revelation of God in the person of Jesus the Messiah? How much more does that deserve a judgment against the people that have known him, been sanctified by him, but actually trample on his blood? And it actually says the Lord will judge the world, right? It actually says the Lord will judge his people. 
In the book of Peter, we're told that judgment doesn't begin in the world, doesn't begin in the White House, doesn't begin in the Kremlin, doesn't begin at the pornographic shops down the street, it doesn't begin there. It actually begins in the house of God. Doesn't that make you a little bit more concerned about the God that we worship? Because the Bible says we're to fear the Lord. We're to walk in integrity before him. Why? Because he's a God that we shouldn't trifle with. But yet he's a God who loves us and is intensely in love and wants to forgive his people. What's the key? What's the hinge? His people coming back to him. If we don't, we're left to our own peril. We're left to our own disasters that will happen. But if we do, we're met with the most intense love, the most sanctifying grace that we can possibly imagine. It's God's grace for us. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting is the people here in Israel would have looked at Hosea and would have gone, yeah, right, come on, Hosea. You're a bit over the top on this thing. Come on, really? We're God's people. He would never do that. And uh, to see Assyria coming in and invade that land and destroy that land would have been a, a shock beyond belief. Yet they were warned. Yet they were told. And yet, history is not done yet. Because even though that happened, there's still two more chapters in Hosea. If that was the end, I would have gone, man, what a sad book. What a, what a just a kind of big letdown. But the next two chapters are one of the most incredible, in my opinion, in the Bible. Uh, you're going to see the future restoration of Israel that God's not done with his people. He loves them. He loves them so much, he put them back in the land now. And he has a plan for them that's completely intertwined with our future. But verse th chapter 13, which we'll study next week, it's a timeline of what they're going to go through. They're going to forsake the Lord. They're going to get a king after their own hearts. Um, and they're going to try to make it work. And yet, it'll lead them right into... Uh, literally, a childbirth experience. Uh, ladies, if you guys had children, you know what that means, right? You don't... Man, we go, oh, come on, childbirth. Yeah, that's right. Uh, ladies, I go, ooh, that's, uh, that's kind of painful. Yeah, that's what Israel's going to go through. A very painful experience, but then there's resurrection. The resurrection uh, that's coming. The rapture and the resurrection. That's what Hosea's going to point to. So there's glorious things up ahead. But God has to deal with his people and tell them, this is where you are. This is where you could be. This is what's keeping you. And this is why it's so serious. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for tonight. Bless your holy word. We thank you for your spirit that gives us the truth. We thank you for Jesus who hung in that place for us, Lord, and bore our sin, our shame, all that we have done against you. We ask you for your grace, Lord. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to turn to you with all our hearts. Help us to sow righteousness, not to the flesh, but to the spirit. Help us to love one another, Lord, as you loved us. Help us to love you intensely and passionately to the point, Lord God, that even the world would wonder what is up with their love, what is up with their passion for this God. And Lord, may they think well of you because they've met us. So we ask you, Lord, to forgive us, Lord, for our indifference. Perhaps, Lord God, we haven't been in, in complete sin or, 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 or just a furthering away from you, but, Lord, we've been indifferent. We've just been cruising without really 
relationship and fellowship with you. And so we ask you, Lord, help us return to that love and compassion, Lord, that maybe we once had, maybe we uh, was that fire that needs to be kindled again. And so, Lord, thank you for the reminders where we are and where we could be. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.